everybody. It is Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I am your host, Brad Eisenlake, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. On today's episode, we're going to touch on a few kind of small stories and then linger a bit on uh, two bigger ones. Uh, One about uh, the Apple uh, WWDC press conference yesterday that had some interesting Apple... Or, uh, implications for the way we interact with our cars going forward, uh, and the other about crossovers, unsurprisingly. Uh, there is some crossover waves happening at Ford, and it sounds like they might be getting rid of two key models for the company just because there's not really a fit for them anymore. Uh, but before we get to all of that, this is the part where I remind you that uh, we do offer this podcast on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, so much more. So if you like what you hear, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, If you think other people might be interested in it, sharing is always a great thing. Uh, And if it's a platform that does take a rating, if you could rate us, uh, that does get us seen by more people. So with all that in mind, uh, let's talk about some news at the very least. Uh, First up is something that's a little bit, uh, I think... I don't know. I guess it's of my interest. I don't know if it's really the interest of everybody. And it's that uh, the Toyota Harrier, which will be known as the Venza once it goes on sale in the United States later this year, uh, is getting a TRD upgrade already uh, over in Japan. Now, when I say the word upgrade, uh, it's really not going to be a TRD performance model. Um, It's definitely not going to be something like a, uh, I don't know, like a RAV4 TRD off-road or what's uh whatever applications that they put on the Tacoma and the Tundra and the uh Sequoia any of those things uh instead this is really just a body kit uh some stickers uh but there is a performance suspension upgrade that is said to uh improve the handling just a little bit uh and increase uh ride quality a little bit more uh that is pretty interesting to see because you know crossovers are becoming the new cars and we've seen that toyota is interested in putting a trd application on many of their different vehicles throughout their lineup obviously we just got some very racy trd performance versions of the camry and weirdly enough the avalon uh it's only a matter of time before we're getting a trd version of the corolla uh so to get a trd version of the venza i don't think would be the craziest thing now here's the other thing about the venza is that it seems like car twitter and car internet culture isn't super interested in the new venza so far at least that's the take that i've gotten from them so far uh me personally uh if you recall the last article that i posted up on medium and talked about in the previous episode of this podcast uh i am really particularly interested in the new venza and a lot of that comes from the fact that i really liked the previous venza Uh, it's been five years since we've had one on the market and i think this new version is going to strike a really nice balance between the RAV4 and the Highlander, where there is a pretty significant uh, size difference, and it's going to feature a lot more premium materials and construction that uh, really, I think, is going to move this segment of the Toyota uh, marketplace forward, and it's also going to give the Lexus RX a chance to really move up market too, which I think is going to be a good thing, especially as Lexus continues to try to I don't want to necessarily say compete with Mercedes and BMW because they're not. They're not even in the same geographical 
territory of performance and driving mechanics and reliability and all these other things. Um, but to make the RX a truly special vehicle, um, to give Lexus that extra step up above Acura, which is now giving a damn about their product lineup, uh, I, th I think having a nice Venza as kind of the RX replacement and giving the RX a little bit more uh, is going to work out pretty well here in the United States. So TRD, the Venza, please, Toyota, I'm really interested to see what you do. Um, but uh, really, more than anything, I'm just interested in seeing uh, the Venza up close in person because uh, I think it's a very cool and interesting crossover. Uh, one other little bit of news before we kind of get into the longer form bits of uh, information, and that is about, uh, well, it's about Ford. Ford has had a weird week or two, and we'll talk about some more Ford news in a minute. Uh, but uh, the Bronco launch was originally scheduled, I think, for what, June 7th or 9th? I think it was the 9th, uh, which just happened to be O.J. Simpson's birthday. Uh, people created a shitstorm online about it uh, just because, you know, Obviously, the infamous car chase in Los Angeles uh, where O.J. Simpson, Simpson was in his white Bronco uh, going down the highway. It was a big fiasco. And, you know, on the one hand, obviously, you don't want to connect those dots. Maybe it was originally intended to be some kind of cheeky inline thing. More than likely, it was just a timing error. Uh, but the announcement's been moved back by a little bit less than a week. I think it's now July 13th. I'm going to double check that number right now as I'm speaking. It is July 13th, so uh, we'll find out more. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Bronco launch is that Ford has been, I'm going to use the words, uh, sniping press outlets for publishing information about the Bronco ahead of time. Uh, the guys at uh, the Fastlane truck, Fastlane car, Fastlane whatever, um, have been banned from Ford's press event for the Bronco, as well as for the 2021 F-150, uh, due to them sharing a bunch of information and leaked images of the Bronco. And, you know, this is going to happen. It's going to always go in circles with these different kinds of organizations. You know, they, they need money from clicks. They need money from views on YouTube. And just the same, you know, Ford is only benefiting from the coverage of this vehicle for the most part. It seems at least to me, very, very clear that anyone and everyone wants to know as much as they can know about this Bronco because they want to buy one. The The Wrangler sales have been red hot for, what, 15 years now? 15, 20 years now? And Ford coming in with a competitor for a similar price, offering similar performance, uh, you know, you can... You can guess why people are so excited to hear or see anything about this thing. So, uh, yeah. So the Bronco is supposed to be shown off on July 13th. I imagine we're going to get a litany of details about the powertrain, about the chassis, uh, about some of the trim levels. Uh, I imagine they're going to talk about how it's a two-door or a four-door with a removable top. Um, I, I would guess the only thing that we won't hear about is pricing. That'll probably get pushed till much later in the year before it goes on sale in this fall and winter but in the end you know I don't know I mean it, it, it's such a weird thing I, I mean I can't think of a recent vehicle in my mind that has been leaked more than the Bronco and to a great extent the the Bronco Sport um, these, these are two cars that really cater to a specific type of market they are the first entrant 
that I, or entrance, I should say, that are actually within, you know, a hair's width of being, you know, doing what Jeep does best. And I imagine Fiat Chrysler's worried about it. And Ford should be just trumpeting this left and right and just being open about it. And it's just really weird how they've handled this whole thing. But I, at the same time, I just can't believe how many leaks that they've let out about these vehicles. I mean, we've seen like full production images of these things, what, four, six plus months ago? Like it was right around, right around Christmas time, I think that those first things started leaking. So yeah, I don't know. I'm excited to see. I'm sure you're excited to see. Uh, we've only got a couple of weeks left until we know much more. But anyway, we're going to take a quick little break, and then we are going to talk about uh, two news stories uh, that I think are a little more interesting and definitely deserve a little bit more of an in-depth discussion. So we'll be back in just a moment. So first of the longer form news stories and discussion uh, is centered around Apple's WWDC announcements that were done uh, yesterday on June 22nd. Uh, Apple, of course, did everything from home in air quotes uh, and had a pretty in-depth uh, look at some of the new things that we're going to be seeing uh, coming not only to their phones, but also uh, the watch, the iPad, the MacBook, and so much more. And a big Part of what they talked about in their press conference was using your iPhone uh, as a key, in addition to some features that will be coming to Apple Maps that uh, will, well, for one, make Apple Maps work a little bit better, but also, to a greater extent, uh, really benefit people who have electric vehicles. So first up, the key segment. Uh, Apple is basically trying to catch up to where Android has been at in terms of using your telephone uh, as a key option. Uh, this is something that Tesla has done with their vehicles. Uh, this is something that Hyundai does. I believe GM does it as well, and I think Ford to some extent. Uh, there's been varying levels of success with this. Uh, I've heard some people complain that the Tesla app uh, frequently does not work well. Um, I've had some people talk about how frustrating it is that with the Hyundai app, it works really well on Samsung devices, but not on anything else. Uh, it's a big mess, to say the least. So what Apple is trying to do is they want to set a new mechanical standard, software standard to make it so uh, all new cars going forward will have some sort of integration uh, with their phone, with their mechanical standard uh, to make things work. BMW is going to be the first car company partnering with Apple for you to be able to use your cell phone as a key. Uh, going forward, I would imagine that means that a lot of other lux luxury auto manufacturers will be doing it. Uh, but what was interesting in at least that discussion is it really seems to signify that the relationship between Apple and BMW is very close-knit. Um, BMW, of course, continues to only uh, offer Apple CarPlay in their vehicles. Uh, they have said that they are working on an Android Auto solution, but it really doesn't seem like it's a high priority for them. Uh, and this does make me wonder, too, if there will be some sort of exclusivity going forward between features of Apple and BMW that uh, other auto manufacturers might want to be a part of. Uh, I think long-term, you know, 
there's no way of really knowing what this is going to be, but uh, at least at this point, we're seeing the emergence to some extent of a trend uh, of their them working together on this particular thing. They also did talk about Ford being a partner to some extent as well. Uh, so I imagine a new car like the Mustang Mach-E will probably have a lot of features that work really well with Apple phones. Um, not to say that they won't with Android, but uh, there might be a little bit more of a close-knit relationship. So that's the smaller part of the news. I think it's important just because, you know, people are doing this key work to varying degrees of success. Uh, if Apple can standardize it, uh, that would be really great. But in the end, you know, it still only caters to a pretty small number of people. Now, on a much greater scale, uh, Apple talked at length about improvements that are coming to Apple Maps. Uh, Apple Maps are going to have you know, more detailed listings inside the app, curated content, uh, better directions, better satellite imaging, you know, the typical things that you would expect. And as someone, someone who is an Android user, someone who's been using Google Maps for what feels like as long as I can remember, uh, all of it seems like ketchup because it truly is. Uh, we were using Apple Maps the other day to get to a destination and I was extremely frustrated because Apple Maps just is not as responsive as Google Maps when it comes to turn-by-turn -turn directions. They really seem to lack the, I'm going to use the word depth, to understand where you're going, how fast you're going, and when you should be turning. Like, it always seemed like the turn direction came like 500 feet too late. Like, I wasn't quite to the corner, but it wasn't quite the distance that you would want to be able to slow down safely indicate and make a turn uh, versus Google Maps where they really let you know ahead of time, um, which is always a great thing. But that all aside, functionality-wise, uh, Apple did mention that they are going to be developing uh, EV uh, directions, EV integrations with Apple Maps that really do seem to be going a step beyond what Google is currently doing and will set, I think, a really interesting standard in the industry uh, when it comes to, well, if you're an EV owner and what phone you use, uh, you know, to get the best experience out of your maps and things like that when you're traveling, uh, this makes a very compelling case for Apple. So what, what are we talking about here? Well, if you've ever been in a Tesla, um, if you've been in a higher trim Nissan Leaf, there are different aspects to the way that their systems work where they take into consideration uh, not only your location, not only your destination, uh, but they consider things like elevation, weather conditions, traffic conditions for you to be getting the most optimal navigation uh, to where you're going to go. So like for Tesla, for instance, you know, if I'm driving from Michigan to Florida, uh, Tesla is going to try to keep me on a route that has supercharger stations nearby, and it will tell me, hey, stop at this supercharger station. Um, you might be able to make it to the next one, but stop at this one just in case uh, because other stuff is going on. And it gives you this really great user experience when you're driving because, you know, you can go thousands of miles without having to worry about, you know, the state of charge of your vehicle. Nissan, on the other hand, their system's a little bit more weird where it uses a cell phone connection and connects to some different various things uh, to figure it out. And it's not always updated and it doesn't really, it gets clunky basically once you're a couple years removed from brand new. Um, that system clearly is not very beneficial. Other car makers have done some things that work in regard to that, but again, it's kind of 
iffy in implementation and support and other things. So Apple's coming in with this EV map, this EV charging information uh, that's going to be specific to your car. So you're going to be able to log into your Apple Maps uh, with the app. You're going to be able to tell Apple Maps that, hey, I have a 2016 BMW i3 in this trim. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be some kind of way where the car and the phone talk to each other um, if you don't have Apple CarPlay compatibility. But you're going to be able to, you know, say, this is where my charge is at, this is what it's doing, and it'll be able to tell you exactly where you need to go, what chargers are available, um, you know, when you need to stop, when you should charge, all these kinds of things. And I think this is really kind of a sign of where things need to go for broader EV adoption because, you know, not every car maker can supply the Tesla experience of being able to own and drive a vehicle uh, at those great distances because, well, you know, technology is different, car prices are different, people's budgets are different, and, you know, you're going to be making some sacrifices choosing a Nissan Leaf versus a Tesla Model 3. Just the same, you know, there's no reason why those people who make those different financial decisions uh, shouldn't be able to have some of those experiences. And for Apple to be able to provide that essentially for free uh, using Apple Maps, I think that is a pretty substantial thing. What I'm definitely curious about is how well this is going to be integrated, say, in a bigger city like Los Angeles or Austin, Texas, or Miami, Florida, uh, versus a smaller city like my own here in Grand Rapids, or a place like Indianapolis, or, you know, even mid-tier cities like Chicago. Um, you know, is, is there going to be enough information? Is there going to be um, enough data to kind of really get the maximum amount of use out of it? Because, you know, here in the Midwest, EV adoption has been I don't want to say non-existent, but it's been pretty slow. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that charging is not seeming to be a priority for many different companies. Uh, we really have only seen, what, two Electrify America stations uh, within 100 miles of where I live. There is one Tesla supercharger station uh, here in this city. And the number of chargers across this area really seem to be quite small and their usage is infrequent and you know it's definitely frustrating as somebody who wants to buy an EV right now which we'll probably touch on again in a little bit here but uh yeah I don't know it, it's it's one of those things where if Apple can get this to go into the system work particularly well uh I definitely could see a situation where if I'm buying an EV like I'm planning to in the next six months uh if I make a change to an i to an iPhone from an Android phone just because uh, this system could be I don't want to say life saving that's being a little too uh, little going a little too far with hyperbole but you know it's definitely something that's going to make the day to day use of an electric of an electric car uh, much easier for a lot of people. So as I promised, there was one other big story, and it was about Ford. Uh, Ford, of course, as I've said in many different episodes of this show, uh, they're getting rid of all of their small, family size, whatever size cars. Cars are dead, basically, at Ford. Uh, other than the Mustang, uh, they are going to be continuing on with crossovers, utility wagons, big SUVs, and other things. Uh, part of that family, uh, and a vehicle that's been a part of that family for a very long time, is the Ford 
Edge, and to a greater extent the Lincoln Nautilus, formerly known as the MKX. Uh, these vehicles have been on sale since 2005. Uh, they really seemed to time the two-row car-like crossover thing just right. Uh, and Ford, at least around here in Michigan, has sold what feels like a billion of these vehicles. Uh, the car did get a refresh in 2015 uh, with some visual upgrades both inside and out. Um, they have been getting consistent mechanical upgrades as well, and sales have actually been up for the Edge year over year uh, with those updates. However, uh, a news story came out yesterday talking about how the plant where uh, the Edge and the Nautilus are manufactured in Ontario is going to be, or at least is slotted to be, uh, shut down in 2023. So that's going to mean that we have only a couple of model years left. Now, nobody has really given an answer as to whether or not there's some, some validity to this. Uh, Ford has said nothing. Lincoln has said that they plan to keep uh, Nautilus production going. And there seems to be some kind of ripple going on where they think uh, Nautilus production is going to move to China, uh, kind of like how Buick builds the Envision there and ships it back to the U.S. Uh, this would mark an interesting change for Ford, uh, because if the Nautilus is going there and all the tooling for this platform is going to be there, uh, there could be a pretty big case where the Edge production also moves to China. And I don't think there's any boogeyman scenario here about Chinese you know, the Chinese market building these vehicles for the American market, because as we've seen, Chinese-made vehicles are proving to be built quite well with exceptional quality, and, you know, there's nothing really to lose. The thing that gets weird is that if this production isn't moving to China, and if these models are outright canceled uh, by 2023, that's kind of an indication that this SUV whatever crossover ification, I don't know what you really want to call this, of the Ford lineup really seems to be too cluttered. And that's what one article I read was kind of uh, hypothesizing about, and I forget which, which website that was on. But basically they had suggested that the difference between a Ford Escape and a Ford Explorer isn't as big as what it used to be. And because of that, both of those vehicles in a roundabout way overlap with the edge. And so because of that, it really largely eliminates the need to have the vehicle there. Like it's a very specific case. If you're going, hey, I want to spend, you know, $40,000 on an SUV. What do I get? Well, you can get a very, very nice Ford Escape that's only slightly smaller than the edge for 40 grand. Or you can get a bare bones Explorer that's much bigger and much more capable for about 40 grand. Um, the other thing, too, is that the Bronco Sport is going to be entering the game as well. Uh, the Bronco Sport looks like it's a little bit bigger than the Escape that it's based on, and at that size range, at that price range, there's a good chance that it's going to, again, eat away from Edge sales a little bit. So the Edge kind of becomes the odd man out, and I really feel like this is me personally, and this is the opinion that I posited on Twitter the other day, and it's that, you know, the edge just really hasn't been relevant in the marketplace for at least the last five years. Like, yeah, it got a visual upgrade. Yeah, it got some mechanical upgrades, but it's still riding on the same platform that dates back to 2005. It's still using 
really low quality plastics on the interior. Um, it's really sized in a strange way that just doesn't really seem to meet the needs of the people who are buying it. Like I, that being said, I know people who have Ford Edges and they love them. They think they're the greatest thing ever, but I just don't really see why you would get one. Um, yeah, the, the Edge ST I think is really cool. I like the idea of this high performance, I'm not going to call it a coupe, but almost coupe-like, like, like in, in a roundabout way, I guess my brain is going, you know, really affordable BMW X6 type performance in a Ford product with the ST model. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily know if that's right, but kind of winding back to a previous story, what would it take for Ford to make the Edge work going forward? And I think, in my opinion, that would be leaning into hybrid technology or going electric. And, you know, they do have the Mustang Mach-E coming, and the Mach-E is roughly the size of a BMW, or sorry, not a BMW, uh, a Tesla Model Y. And if you've seen a Tesla Model Y, you know it's about the size of a BMW X3. Uh, it's you know, a mid-size to kind of compact uh, executive vehicle. And while I really like the size and shape of the Mach-E, I definitely think that there is a case for a larger electric vehicle in the lineup. And I go, the Ford Edge would make a really good case for itself being the next step up from the Mach-E in the lineup by competing against the Tesla Model X. You know, if you could build a Model X competitor for let's say $60,000 to start, you know, you're still significantly cheaper than the X. You're a decent step up from the Mustang Mach-E. Size-wise, there's definitely a way to fit between the Mach-E and the Explorer and whatever the Edge could possibly be. And you could really deliver on some interesting performance characteristics as well. I think ultimately, really what you're looking at, and I think what Ford should be doing is looking at what kind of case can we make to middle, upper middle class and maybe middle middle class families and say, you know, here's a decently priced crossover with dual electric motors that's going to be able to go 300 miles on a charge for this price. Is this something that you could do? Because I think in the end, you know, I don't know. The Edge as an EV, I think works. The Edge as a gasoline family hauler. It works for some people, but it just doesn't make a compelling case for me. I don't know. It's it's a weird line. And that, that's, of course, where we're at in this industry right now is everything is so finely cut in terms of market share and marketability and sales numbers and what platform it's on and what technology it's using that, you know, I... I it almost feels like you could make a case for anything, and as long as you sell, you know, 30,000 units a year, uh, you might turn a profit, and that might be just good enough, and you drag it on for 10 or 15 years, like you have with the Edge, and yeah, I don't know, I, it's just, it's very weird, and it, it's definitely showing signs that Ford's all-crossover choice, I think, is crumbling to some extent, because there's just not enough distance between models, so... We'll see. And I think the other thing, too, is uh, another article, again, mentioned some of these things, is that, you know, the Ford Fusion replacement is coming. And the Ford Fusion replacement is largely supposed to be this uh, Subaru Outback type competitor, where it's going to be a four-wheel drive 
station wagon that's got a little bit of a lift to it compared to a regular car uh, and will have you know some plastic cladding might have some slight off-road capability uh, but in the end you know is meant to capture that Volvo uh, XC what is it the XC60 I think that's what the name <laughs> Volvo's gotten too complicated with their naming schemes but you know it's going to be that XC70 follow-up it's going to be it's going to be the Audi A6 all-road kind of follow-up you know that kind of thing and Ford's going to do it for you know probably 30 to 40 grand I think that's a fair price and again that kind of pushes the edge out of market a little bit further so yeah who knows but it's definitely an interesting story so after the bump, uh, I want to talk a little bit about used EV shopping. Um, just a couple of notes on some things that I've driven and uh, where I think things might be heading for my partner and I. Back in a second. So last up, I wanted to touch a little bit on used electric vehicle shopping. It's something that my partner and I are doing. Um, I don't know if maybe... She's as committed as I am to buying a strictly electric vehicle, but I think it's the time, it's the place. Uh, electric vehicles are going to be the future, and, you know, as charging stations continue to roll out, albeit very, very slowly here in West Michigan, uh, I think in the end we could make an electric vehicle work really well uh, within our commute distance and really just, you know, obviously make a better choice for the environment. It's a great thing. So we drove a Fiat 500e a couple of months ago. Uh, literally, we drove it on Saturday. My partner lost her job on that Monday. It was a weird situation. Uh, it was a very affordable little guy. Uh, they had that thing priced like two and a half, well, not quite two and a half, I guess a grand and a half below market. Uh, the only thing that was wrong with it was a broken door handle. Um, you know, that would have been a $350 fix. I still would have come out pretty far ahead. And we really like the 500E. You know, the, the biggest complaint that I had about the overall vehicle was that, one, it didn't have an infotainment system uh, that really was anywhere close to usable. It was one that, of the older 500Es that had the little TomTom plug-in on the dash. And the other thing, of course, is that the overall size of the vehicle is quite small. You know, I'm six foot, 200 pounds. Uh, my girlfriend is also a taller, bigger Dutch person like me. So the two of us, you know, sitting in the front seats are taking up a lot of space. And it would be a car where we really couldn't put friends in the back. And if we were going to carry anything, we'd likely have to fold the rear seats. And, you know, depending on what we're using the car for, that would be completely fine. Uh, but in the end, you know, just thinking about it, it's not quite enough space. So the Fiat 500 is still very high on the list of vehicles that we would like to get. Uh, really, it's a matter of, you know, finding one at a decent price uh, that's close to us. And right now that seems to be a fairly unlikable or unlikely uh, prospect. Uh, the other vehicle that we drove recently, or at least I drove recently, was the uh, Ford Focus Electric. The one I drove was a 2014 model. Uh, the Focus Electric is, you know, like many of these cars that we have been considering are compliance cars that were designed uh, for the California market first. So they're basically a car that was already on sale. They jammed a battery pack and an electric motor in it and sent it out the door. The difference for the Ford Focus Electric is that they did sell these across the United States and they will service them uh, at Ford dealerships across the United States. 
And the Focus Electric, you know, was known for being a very well-handling, very well-riding vehicle with some pretty weird compromises thrown in. Uh, more or less, Ford mounted the battery uh, in the trunk of the vehicle uh, vertically, so it took up a ton of cargo space. Like, you can barely fit a backpack, like two backpacks flat in the cargo area with the cargo cover on. Uh, which isn't a super practical uh, answer for what we want to do. Uh, the other thing is, is that, excuse me, the uh, Ford Focus EV really seems to lack the range that we want. Uh, on a good day, it would be 74 miles. Uh, when you start considering the extreme weather conditions that we have in Michigan, you know, that cuts that down, you know, 25 to 30%. And so you're looking at 40 to 45 miles at the peak of the summer and the peak of the winter, uh, which is not super optimal. So the Focus EV isn't necessarily out of competition. It would not be one that I would be super interested in. Uh, but that being said, value-wise, I think it does offer some interesting upsides compared to the Fiat 500e. Um, but, you know, it's not as much fun, and it's not as cool-looking, and it really just didn't feel special. And I think that's what really put me off it more than anything. Um, but there is one for sale near me uh, here in the greater Grand Rapids area that is black. Um, it's in... It's only got like 22,000 miles on it. It spent its entire life on the Michigan Lakeshore, not driven really much in the wintertime. Uh, I really like it in that color versus the silver one that I drove. And I think in my mind I could make a case for it, especially when it's around $9,000. Uh, but I don't know. Long term, mm, not super interested in that. But what we've been doing is we've continued shopping and listening to people on car Twitter and people on different automotive websites and other things talk about EV technology is that we've really brought the uh, Volkswagen e-Golf into our view uh, as well as returning to a previous favorite of ours, which is the BMW i3. Uh, so first up on the Golf, I think, you know, this is a car that you know, like the Focus, is a compliance vehicle. They they jammed a battery into the back of the car. Uh, they put, you know, the electric motor up front where the engine would go, or the gasoline engine would have gone. Uh, and they built a very competent, you know, hatchback. Uh, the e-Golf really doesn't make any major compromises in terms of cargo capacity. It really doesn't make any compromises in terms of interior volume. And the car still gets the better part of 90 miles on a single charge. Uh, Volkswagen really spent a lot of time and energy making this a very good and practical car, and since a large, since a large number of the 2016 e-Golf SEs, their more affordable trim, have become available, uh, those prices on those things, even with 30,000 miles on them, are all hovering right around twelve to $13,000, and that is a very doable price. It's a very doable electric range. It's a very doable car in terms of reliability because apparently Volkswagen will service these at most of their dealers if you ask very nicely, um, which is definitely an upside for us because that's been an ongoing thing is we don't want to have to travel, you know, a couple hundred miles to get the car worked on. Um, we want to, you know, have a dealership close by that'll do the work on the car uh, because, you know, that's how it should be. Uh, but the thing with the e-Golf is, 
because the dealership network and serviceability is all weird and crazy, uh, the closest e-golf to us to even go and look at and test drive is like 150 miles away. So uh, there are a couple around Schaumburg and Aurora, Illinois. Uh, there was one, I think, over in the greater Detroit area. Um, and it's really a question of, you know, is it worth driving a six plus hour round trip to go test drive an EV and not really know if we're going to like it or not. And I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, you know, basically everyone who I've talked to about this car said, yeah, thumbs up. The, the Volkswagen e-Golf is a very, very good car. Um, they, they seem to be very reliable. They seem to last a long time. Uh, the batteries seem to hold up really well. Um, so those are all good things, but you know, whatever else could go wrong with them, you know, could spell some trouble later on down the road. Uh, the other interesting thing is that the Volkswagen e-Golf, out of all of the EVs that we've looked at and considered, has by far, in a way, the cheapest insurance rate out of everybody. Um, so the Volkswagen e-Golf is about $107 a month with full coverage insurance. Uh, the most expensive, weirdly enough, is the, what was it? Was it the Chevy Volt, I think was the top one? Uh, that was like $125. So you know, near enough a $15 difference. That's really kind of crazy that there's that much of a gap. The other vehicle that we've really kind of come back around on is the BMW i3, and that's one that has an insurance rate that's kind of somewhere in the middle of those. Uh, these things, when we looked at them about a year and a half ago, uh, they were trading for about 18 grand for a pretty well-equipped 2014 or 2015 battery electric model. Um, that price has now fallen down to around 13, 11 to 13 thousand dollars in some cases. Uh, so these have not been a particularly good investment for a lot of people around the area. Uh, that being said, the i3 seems to be either a very incredibly well-built vehicle with no problems at all, or it's one of the worst and most expensive EVs that you can buy uh, because of some of the weird things they did with the range extender model. Um, so we've kind of talked about what we want to do and considered different things and on the one hand I go yeah I kind of want the range extender model because of you know who knows what can happen in Michigan at any given time uh, but on the flip side some people say that you know simple fixes are very expensive with the car and will eat up a warranty guarantee right away uh, and you know if it's one little part that breaks and you're looking at six to ten k to fix it on a you know twelve thousand dollar used car that's not really a good thing so i think we're kind of sliding back into the idea of just a strictly battery electric i3 and it's really kind of come down to volkswagen and bmw on the one hand you know the volkswagen i like just because they're a good shape it's a well-known vehicle you know, like I said, you can go to the B uh, Volkswagen dealer and get some work done. Uh, but at the same time, the BMW dealer, you know, all BMW dealers are supposed to be certified to work on the i3. And that's a little more comforting. Uh, that being said, you do have to pay BMW repair prices if anything does go wrong. Um, but considering how infrequent the battery electric versions seem to break, maybe that might work out in our favor. I don't know. We, we really liked the E3, or E3, the i3 that we drove. Um, you know, it is rear-wheel drive, so it might not be the greatest thing in the snow, but most of the roads around us get paved pretty well, or not paved, get cleared pretty well come wintertime, so that wouldn't be too much of a concern either. So we'll see what happens. Um, I'm keeping an eye out for some of the i3s that are listed online. 
A lot of people are suggesting that the prices are going to get shoved down even further here uh, in a little bit as 2017 leases start getting returned in the fall. So we could see a pretty big drop in sale prices once again. And if those 17 models start getting cheap, uh, those did have upgraded batteries with more range compared to the 15, 14s, 15s, and 16s. Uh, and that would be a pretty nice thing to see come through because uh, any little bit of extra range that we can get does go a long way, especially with the uh, weather compromises that we have here in Michigan. So yeah, that is what's going on with that. Anyway, guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. If you'd like to follow along with me online, uh, you can do so uh, with on Twitter. It's at uh, Y-S-S-M-A-N. And you can uh, also follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, let's see if there's anything else going on. There's really not much happening right now. We're still in kind of the weird COVID times. Uh, you know, many other parts of the country are spiking as we speak. Michigan seems to leveled off a good bit, although people are still acting like it's, you know, back to how things were in January and February, and it's been a little maddening to say the least. Uh, so if you're out and about, make sure that you are wearing a mask, you're making good decisions. Um, also, you know, make sure that you think about how Black Lives Matter uh, and, you know, do the right thing. Make sure that, you know, just don't be a shitty, shitty fucking person. I, I feel like that's a easy thing to ask, but it seems to be a hard thing to do for many people. But uh, yeah, anyway, with all that in mind, guys, I hope you have a great rest of your week, and we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.